Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim continues our series we're calling The Undivided Self, as we look at what it means to be whole at home. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. If I have yet to meet you, my name is Tim. I'm, I'm grateful that you're with us this morning. It's a new year. It's a new sermon series launched last week, uh, and uh, I'm excited to, to dive into it. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 14 this morning. Acts 14. Uh, Chris kicked off the series last week. If you were able to, to make it on, new, was it New Year's Eve last week? Yeah. Uh, uh, new series. We're calling this one Undivided. Uh, essentially, um, the premise of the series is for many of us, if not all of us, our life can feel like spinning plates, and some of those plates are glass, and some of those are plastic. Some you can let fall, and it might be okay, but others you know that if this spinning plate wobbles too much, and if it falls, lots of other things fall with it. And, uh, and so the question we want to approach all of the different hats we wear, whether that's um, the spinning plate of like your work relationships, or your school relationships, or your family relationships, or even, uh, we'll get here in a few weeks, uh, your, uh, what does it mean to be an American citizen? That, like, how do we do this? Um, how do we live as the kind of people who hold a certain set of values, a uh, certain set of principles, that every space we find ourselves in, we are the same person? Even if the, being that person isn't popular in that space, uh, we are just convinced, I'm convinced that uh, ultimately, even uh, the unpopular decision, if it's out of a certain set of values that we carry deep, um, some deep scriptural, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus kind of values, that ultimately we will win if we live out of those values. So how do we, how do, we do that? How do we uh, make sure that we're not living as divided people, showing up one way as one person and another way as another person? Uh, I, I love this quote uh, by Dallas Willard on what it means to be a disciple. He says, uh, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. So what, is, what does that mean? Like if he were you with, with your schedules, with your demands uh, on time, your work pressures, your marriages, your parenting, uh, the pressure at school, the pressure at work, what would, Jesus, uh, what would Jesus do if he were you in those spaces? That's a pretty good definition, I think. Um, and uh, I've been listening to uh, this podcast and heard um, on leadership, and I heard this interview with, you familiar with John Maxwell, kind of leadership uh, coach, guru of leadership. Uh, he was asked for his definition of success, and he said, I've, I've, this definition's, I think, worth the price of admission, which is free, but still worth it. Uh, he says, uh, success is when the people who know me the best love and respect me the most. Let me say that again. Uh, success uh, is when the people who know you the best love and respect you the most. How do we live a certain kind of, under a certain set of values that even the people who see all of our, our junk, all of our, the stuff we're working on, when they still stand at a distance and see it all and can say, you know, I love you and I respect you for who you truly are. How do we, how do, we do that? How do we live in undivided selves as fully surrendered followers of Jesus, trying to look like Jesus in the worlds we live. If Jesus were us living like that here. 
Um, now, what I want to do this morning is I want to introduce you to, a, I want to tell you a story. Uh, it's one of my, well, all of them are my favorite stories. This is one of my favorite stories in the scriptures. Uh, this is, somebody asked me once, what's your favorite story in the Bible? And it's usually whatever I'm talking about next. That's my favorite story. Um, but this one, this one is good. This is uh, equal parts Braveheart and Hallmark. So if you're like a Braveheart gladiator, it's got that in it. Um, but it also has this really touching, uh, tender moment in this particular story. Uh, this, this particular story I have found to be helpful as I think through. Um, so today we're talking about what does it mean to be undivided at home. Um, for those of you who have younger ones who are looking up to you, whether that is uh, as a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a teacher or a coach or a mentor, uh, if you've got someone who looks up to you in any way, I find this particular story uh, to be really, really helpful to think about. How do we show up in those particular spaces? Um, the story itself is found in Acts 14. Uh, let's just explore the story, and then I'll kind of tease out a few insights that have been helpful to me. But Acts 14, let's begin in verse Acts 14, verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and he called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and he began to walk. So let's pause here. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with Paul, Paul's this great missionary. One of the first Christians, travels the world, uh, telling people about Jesus, uh, launches all these small churches that become larger churches. A lot of our New Testament is written by Paul because a lot of our New Testament are simply letters written to the early church to address some of the problems that the early church is facing. Paul, this great missionary, has made his way to a city in modern-day Turkey known as the city of Lystra. Here's Lystra on a map. Uh, It's up here. So Paul is from down, uh, well, he was down here in the Jerusalem area not long before this. And Paul makes his way up to Lystra. And uh, while he's here, he's speaking about Jesus and he's healing people. We read one of those encounters. And a crowd is growing. And then this happens. Verse 11. When the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because the crowd, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Let me pause here. Why are they doing this? Uh, There's a really interesting, and uh, I'll kick myself now for not having time to tell you the whole story, but there's a really interesting backstory. You probably read this in high school English class. Um, but a gentleman by the name of Ovid wrote a masterpiece, his masterpiece, called The Metamorphoses. And uh, it was released about 30 years before this story. Don't have time to get into it. You should look it up. Um, but in the middle of Metamorphoses, there's this little story that seems to be what's going on here. The, the, the Twitter version, the abridged version of the story is... Uh, Ovid tells the story of how Zeus and Hermes came in disguise to the people of Lystra, but the people of Lystra didn't recognize them because they were in disguise, and so they were not welcomed in any home, and Zeus and Hermes then called down fire on the city of Lystra. So it seems what's going on in the story is they know, they know that particular story. It's pretty fresh. We're still reading it in English classes uh, in schools all over our country today. Um, But it was fresh in their imaginations 30 years earlier. 
Uh, and that story seems like, okay, we now see these two guys who have entered our city and they're doing some stuff. This must be Zeus and Hermes again. So we're not going to make the same mistake we made before. If, if what caused fire to fall from heaven was we were not hospitable, this time we're going to get it right. This time we're going to be hospitable. And so they start worshiping Zeus, or Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes, as gods in the flesh come in disguise. And then we read this. <clears throat> but when the apostles, Paul, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn away from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Uh, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Do you, do you see the play here? They, the, the crowds want to worship them as gods. They say, no, 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 we're not gods. We're simply messengers. God is the one who's giving you rain. We're not giving you rain. God is the one who's providing for your needs. We're not providing. We're simply messengers. And even after doing all that, they still want to, like, ah, are you sure? We're still going to go out of our way. We're going to make sure you get worshipped. Um, then... Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. By the way, uh, this, this uh, story, take Lystra, takes place in a region called Galatia, the letter of Galatians. Paul is angry at the same group of Jews who seem to be following him around and putting extra burdens on the people. Um, but these, they win the crowd over, so now you have the crowd is turned pretty quickly. Crowds turn pretty quickly. Would you agree? Uh, crowds can turn. Uh, they win the crowd over, and now they try to, to they, well, now they don't try. They stone Paul, drag him out city, outside the city thinking he's dead. Now, a little bit of context. Uh, when I, kind of growing up with these stories, when I thought about stoning, my mental image of what stoning was, and I'm guessing a lot of us carry this image, uh, was it's an angry mob, and they pick up stones, and they start chucking it at you. And I said, that, okay, that must be stoning. A bunch of people, angry mob, picking up rocks and chucking it at people. That's not what's probably happening here. Um, biblically, uh, stoning, if you read it in context, was actually something that the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders had a whole system of laws uh, recorded in a Jewish book called the Mishnah. And there was a whole process behind stoning. Uh, there was a whole series of rules and regulations for how you can carry out stoning uh, if you think someone's doing something worthy of stoning. Now, the overly simplified version of the rules, uh, I'll give you three of them. Uh, first rule is that the sin that's committed has to be blasphemy. Somehow this must be a sin that is a sin not just against somebody else. There's different rules to deal with if I were to sin against you. But if I sin against God, how do we deal with it? Well, it has to be blasphemy, they said. Then we can stone you. That's the first rule. Second rule, two witnesses have to witness the blasphemy. Then, third rule, they would lead you, those two witnesses, with whoever else is in the crowd. They would lead you to the edge of a cliff. Now, the Mishnah says that that cliff has to be twice the, the height of the man being stoned. It can be taller, but it can't be shorter. The two witnesses would lead you to the edge of a cliff, they, one of them would push you off, and uh, there's this whole series of rules, by the way, if you fall face down, they got to run down there, and they got to flip you back over, 
But, but if you fell face, for, face up, then the, the next person, if you didn't die from the fall, would take a large boulder and they would drop it on you. If that still didn't kill you, everyone else in the crowd could take a boulder and they could drop it on you. This is biblical stoning. This was how you deal with blasphemy, they said. Um, uh, a brief tangent that we don't have time for again, but uh, put this mental model of stone, what stoning is onto the story of Jesus uh, in, when he preaches his first sermon in Nazareth, Luke 4. Uh, if you remember the story, Jesus preaches a sermon. The crowds don't like it. We're told that they bring Jesus to the edge of a large cliff because they wanted to push him off. That's what the story says. But then Jesus turns and walks through the crowd. Now, if you read that story without any kind of cultural knowledge of what's going on contextually, you could think that Jesus is using his God powers to be like, I'm not going to get me now. Um, Probably not what's happening. Probably they drag him to the edge of the cliff because they're angry. But no one dares push him off the cliff because if you push, if you accuse somebody of blasphemy that's not guilty of blasphemy, now the sin is on you. You've committed a sin. So apparently they're angry with Jesus. He preaches a sermon. But if you read the sermon, all he's doing is quoting Old Testament biblical stories about how God continues to come to the foreigner and the outsider. He's not committing blasphemy. They bring him to the edge of the cliff. They can't accuse him, so he walks out because he stands innocent. Is that, is that cool? I find it cool. So that's, that's biblical stoning. In this particular story, we have Paul. He's brought to the edge of the cliff. They say, no, he is guilty of blasphemy, most likely because of his approach to circumcision, um, which is what the letter of Galatians is all about. The Jews following were mad that Paul wasn't requiring circumcision of those who were not Jewish. They push him off, they stone him, and they think he's dead, but he's not. Paul survives. And here's where things get Braveheart. Verse 20. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, he's not dead, he got up and he went back into the city. So you, you following the story? They, uh, they, Paul is stoned. They leave him to die. And then uh, when they think he's dead, they go back to their houses. Paul gets up and instead of kind of saying, okay, let's go somewhere else, Paul goes back into the city. He's not done. Paul goes back into the city. Why? Right? Why? I mean, that's the question that this text that kind of forces us to ask. Why would Paul go back? You know they don't like you. The city has agreed. Something, the, 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 um, something was said that the city agreed. Okay, this, isn't, this guy is dangerous. This guy is committing blasphemy. We got to kill this guy. Why go back into the city? Now, to get it, the answer to that, I think the scripture itself doesn't tell us explicitly why. But I think we can wager a pretty strong hypothesis if you keep reading the story. It feels like the story is kind of coming to a close, but actually it's just ramping up. Because Paul will, uh, and this gets at Paul's motive. Paul will leave Lystra, and then the next story found in Acts 15, he heads back to Jerusalem. Now, we studied this story a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago. Um, it's uh, what we, what's referred to as the Jerusalem Council. Uh, he meets all of the religious leaders, these early Christians, and all the big names are there. James, Jesus' brother, Peter's there, all the big names are there. And they have a debate. The nature of the debate is Paul says, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, they should not be bound by the same kind of laws and restrictions that us Jews are. Gentiles in particular, we should not require them to be circumcised. 
And they debate it, and they debate it, and they debate it, and they debate it. And because we studied it, I'll give you the, Paul wins. Paul wins the debate. We, okay, they say, okay, let's send a letter out to everyone saying we're no longer going to require Gentiles to be circumcised. That's Acts 15. Again, raising the question, Paul, the, probably the thing that the, the, the Jews worked the crowd up around was this idea of circumcision. Why does Paul go, Acts 16, Paul goes back to Lystra. The very, so he, he gets stoned in Lystra. He gets up, goes back to the city, then leaves the city, goes back to Jerusalem, argues for the people of Lystra. And then his first move after winning that debate is to go right back to Lystra. Why is Paul going back to Lystra? Again, now we can wager a guess based on what happens when he goes back to Lystra. It actually really helps what's going on in Acts 15. Because Acts 15, you could argue that Acts 15, Paul is arguing on behalf of a people, on behalf of Gentiles. But once you put Acts 16 in, you realize it's not just he's trying to make a theologically abstract point about a people group. It seems like Paul has a person in mind. Acts 16 says this. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, and, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in the area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. This is an interesting detail. We're introduced to this guy named Timothy. Which, by the way, he's just argued that we shouldn't have to circumcise. And then notice this first thing he does with Timothy is he circumcises him. We'll come back to that. Um, but, but who is Timothy? Uh, it's a strong name. Masculine. <laughs> who is this guy, Timothy? Uh, Timothy, what we know from the, the other scriptures, you can kind of fill in the gaps. When Paul meets him, he's, he's a pretty young boy. Not an old man. Paul, Timothy's a pretty young boy. The reason we know this is because Paul will later write, about five years after this moment, he'll write Timothy a series of letters. And in one of the letters, he says this to Timothy. He says, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young. And the word that's, that we translate young is the word, a Greek word, technia. And it literally means a young teenager. So 13, 14, maybe 15 so if this story takes place five years before that story, uh, how old is Timothy? Seven, eight, nine, maybe 10 years old? Timothy's a boy when, he goes, when Paul goes back to Timothy. Why does Paul, to the city who tries to kill him, who tries to stone him, who actually thinks they succeeded, why does he go back to that why does he leave, argue the case on behalf of that, that, those kinds of people, and then go back to that city? It seems to be that he's got somebody in mind. It seems like Paul goes back just for Timothy. In fact, what you'll notice in this story is he goes back to Lystra, and all he does is find Timothy, apparently, and then leaves with Timothy. He goes back, Timothy's begins to follow Paul wherever Paul goes. He goes to Lystra again, gets Timothy, and takes Timothy with him. It seems like Paul has this in his head, like, okay, this whole time he's arguing this case. They stoned him, thought he was dead. In his mind, he's got this kid in his brain, and he's got to help this kid, Timothy. 
Now, that raises a question. Uh, maybe you're asking this question. Parents, you're asking this question. Where are the parents? Why would you let your kid, 10-year-old boy at the oldest, most likely, why would you let your 10-year-old go with a guy that the whole city just agreed is so dangerous we got to kill him? Why let your kid just go everywhere with Paul? Uh, the, the city just created a mob who tried to kill him. Why let your child go with him? There's a detail in the story that is easy to read over. And again, we need to know the context, um, but it's easy to read over this detail. Um, but the detail in the story is we're told that Timothy's dad was Greek. Okay, it's a huge detail in the story. Um, it, it seems like an, uh, one of those details you read right over. This detail really matters. Timothy's dad was Greek. I got to teach you a word. Uh, it's a Hebrew word. Uh, I will not make you repeat it after me because it's actually a really ugly Hebrew word. It was especially ugly then. It's still very ugly, although uh, there's a crew that's trying to redeem the word. But the word itself is uh, one of the harshest curse words. It's actually a, a racial slur that is um, not all that unlike the N-word in our culture. It's, it's a harsh word that you would put on a people racially. Um, simply because of they're a certain race. The word is the word, uh, the, the, and you, you got to say it quietly because it's a bad word, right? It's a really ugly word in the Hebrew language. shows up twice in our Bible. Um, both times, it's really hard to read. The word is the word mumzer. Uh, I tell you that. I, I say the, the bad word um, because this word, if it was put on you, would change everything. To the Jewish people at this time, uh, your bloodline was everything. Remember, they believed that y they were God's chosen people. They have good reason to believe this. God has said, I will choose you as my people. The Jewish people said to be Jewish, um, you are God's chosen people. To not be Jewish meant you were an outsider. I love that we sang the song, There Are No Outsiders. Uh, because, but for them, they would say, to not be Jewish meant you were an outsider. You were a Gentile. You were everyone else. To be half Jewish you are an abomination. You have spoiled the blood. You have contaminated God's chosen people. You have potentially damaged God sending his Messiah into the world because you've ruined the bloodline. And here we're told that Timothy's mom, Jewish. Dad, Greek. Timothy, mumser. That's bad. Timothy, uh, if you keep reading through the story, you get this sense in the story that Timothy's dad, this Greek, isn't in the picture. Um, we're taught that his mom and his grandma teach him the scriptures, so he learns the scriptures from mom and grandma, but Timothy's dad is never mentioned. Timothy's dad is not in the picture. Many scholars believe that it's likely because Timothy's dad got Timothy's mom pregnant and split. Many scholars think that what happened was Timothy's dad was a Greek soldier who made his way into the city, uh, got her pregnant against her will, and then split, leaving Timothy's mom to raise a child, knowing that this child is going to grow up and have this label placed on him. To be a mumser uh, ruined everything in many, many ways. Uh, the word mumser itself comes from two words, uh, the word mum, which is the word, uh, which is literally means strange, and the word czar, which means, uh, I'm sorry, mum, which means defect, and czar, which means strange. To be a mumser was to be a strange defect. 
by the way, the Christmas story, this is the label that seems to be placed on Jesus 30 years later. Where's your dad, Jesus? Where's your dad? Uh, The kinds of language they say of Jesus, Jesus seems to have lived with this particular label as well. To be a mumser meant you couldn't go to school with the other kids. You couldn't learn in synagogue with the other kids. To be a mumser meant that you not only were cursed from certain areas, you yourself were a curse. You were not allowed to contaminate the playground. You were not allowed to contaminate the classroom. You were not allowed to study the scriptures. When Timothy's mom and grandma teach him the scriptures, it's a subversive act. You were not allowed. To be a mumser, if you were going to marry somebody who is Jewish and you were deemed a mumser, this half-Jew, you would have to reveal that fact to them before marriage. In many really Orthodox Jewish circles, this still exists. Um, you can find dating websites for mumsers who want to find other mumsers. It's, um, because to this day, in many Orthodox circles, uh, they still saw it as, well, if I marry you now, I'm contaminating our bloodline. I can't marry you. Uh, it's like the, the red flag of red flags. To be a mumser meant, for Timothy to be labeled a mumser meant he carried around a stigma, a label, a prejudice everywhere he, he went. It was legalized, sanctionized, racism. And Timothy was a mumser. I think what happens is Paul gets to Lystra. He meets this kid, Timothy. And then uh, they try to kill him. They convince the crowd, the Jews convince the crowds that like Paul's up to no good. He's not who you think he is. They try to kill him. He goes back to Jerusalem to argue the case of somebody like a Timothy. I mean, he's not the only one like this. He's a victim. He's a victim. He wins the debate. He heads back to Lystra, and he goes right to the door of Timothy, and he approaches Timothy's mom. And why does Timothy's mom let Timothy go with Paul? How much can a parent's heart hold when you watch your kid, probably for something that you didn't do, something that was done to you, but you now watch that label affect every decision of your child's life. How much in a world that largely you learn a trade from your father and dad's out of the picture, how much can you hold? And at what point do you simply see a man like Paul coming in and, and say, this man gives my son hope? And so Timothy joins Paul. Timothy, the, the reject, Uh, Timothy, the outsider, joins Paul. Now, um, Paul and Timothy, Paul will write Timothy a handful of letters. Uh, They're in our Bible. Any guesses as what they're called? (laughs) First and second Timothy are the letters that Paul writes to Timothy. They're letters written to Timothy when Timothy was a pastor. Timothy will follow Paul, learn the trade, and eventually take over a church in the city of Ephesus, which will be the, the central hub of the New Testament explosion. The New Testament does not launch out of Jerusalem, not really. It doesn't launch out of Antioch, not really. The New Testament launches out of Ephesus where Timothy will become the pastor. Let that sink in. Paul will write Timothy a handful of letters a few years later, about five years later. Timothy's still a young teenager, he says in those letters. But when you read the letters, knowing a bit of the background, the letters read like classic Paul. They're very paul 
No scholars are arguing that these are not written by Paul. They're very Paul. But Paul does something different in his letters to Timothy than in every other letter he writes. Most of the letters Paul writes, uh, he writes to churches. Uh, For instance, the letter to the church in Galatia, same region. He says, Paul, an apostle to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you. Uh, to the letter to the city of Philippi, known as Philippians in our Bible, Paul begins a letter like this. Paul and Timothy, so now Timothy's with him, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Uh, or to the, so he, he refers to them as holy people. Uh, or to the letter to Colossae, uh, known as Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. We can keep going. There's a few more examples. But do you see the pattern? When Paul writes letters to churches, he'll refer to them as the church or as holy people or as saints or as brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, notice how he's going to write when he writes Timothy. This for me is stunning. This, This mumser, this reject, this kid whose dad is not on the scene and his son is bearing the consequences of the label Notice how Paul will write Timothy. First Timothy is how he starts. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, the second letter he writes begins like this. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that beautiful? I find that, uh, maybe it's because it's my namesake, I don't know, but I find it so incredibly moving that when Paul addresses Timothy, this kid who's got the label of outsider, reject, mumser, it's it's a terrible word. To this kid, Paul says, you're not just a brother in Christ. You're not just a holy person or a saint. You're not just part of the church. You're my true son, my dearly beloved son. I picture Timothy opening these letters, receiving these letters, and weeping when he reads this language. Uh, But it's not just him calling Timothy his true son to Timothy. Um, When Paul speaks to other people, notice how he talks about Timothy. This is to the letter uh, letter that went out to the church in Philippi, to the Philippians, he writes, But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Now, So again, he refers to him as his son, but what's most stunning about this is if you start the letter, we read it earlier, Paul addresses the letter as from Paul and Timothy. Timothy's with him as he's bragging about his relationship with Timothy. Again, I've... See how it's equal parts like Braveheart? Like, I'm going to get up and go back to the city. You try to kill me, I'll get back in the ring. And it's equal parts Hallmark. This beautiful relationship of this adult man and this kid who has been the outcast uh, and this speaking life back into this kid. Okay, with that, let me give uh, some observations about, in particular, parenting that I think we can pull from the story um, before I do, let me give three quick disclaimers. These are uh, important for me to say, and I, I want you to at least hear me say the disclaimers. Uh, first, um, I, I think it's important that anytime we talk about parenting, we should acknowledge that there is very few areas of life that hold more pain or shame 
than parenting. Whether, the, whether it's pain, you lost a child, uh, you could not conceive, uh, your parents were not the parents you deserved, or whether it's shame. Um, I have a very vivid memory of preaching a sermon on parenting uh, back in the day, and afterwards, a, a man coming up and just weeping, saying, I feel like a failure, I feel like a failure. And then I felt like a failure because I did not want to put that on him. Uh, there's a lot of shame we carry because we know, listen, none of us are perfect examples. God is our perfect example. We're all living examples. None of us are doing this perfect. Uh, even the social media influencers, they're not, they're not. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that if you feel like you're not perfect in this, that's, you're not supposed to be. You're a living example, not a perfect example. Second disclaimer is I do not pretend to be, nor am I at all, an expert on this. My kids are still young. I've not even uh, parented teenage children yet. I am not Dr. Becky. For those who follow Dr. Becky, I'm not Dr. Spock from back in the day. I am not Dr. Phil. I... I'm probably not even as good as Dr. Dre at this, okay? So let's just name that. Uh, Mike, I got three kids. I love each of them, but they're all very, very different. And they grew up in the same house uh, with the same parents, the same kind of basic way of life, same environments. Uh, and so uh, a cookie-cutter playbook for here's how you parent, I think it's, we should always be wary of anything that's like cookie-cutter because um, there's just no cookie-cutter. Every kid is, every child's a beautiful snowflake. Okay, just... <laughs> Disclaimer, number three, uh, this is an important one. Uh, you do not have to be a parent to be a parent. Uh, let me say that a little less confusingly. Uh, you do not have to have biological children or even have adopted children that you're raising to be a parent to a child, to be the kind of person that could be a deep influence. Uh, you, some of the, the most beautiful examples of a parenting kind of relation, it's the reason we chose this story, this Paul Timothy. They're not... They're not blood-related. Most beautiful examples I've seen of, of adults coming alongside children have come through Kids, kids Hope, um, through teachers who deeply care, uh, through a coach who sees something in a kid that the kid can't see in himself and, or in herself and just calls it out of a, ch- a child, to a mentor. Um, there's, so you, you do not have to be a parent to be a parent. Okay, with that, uh, there are some things from the story that I personally find helpful, and in particular, when it comes to the different stages of Timothy's life, how Paul responds to Timothy in the various stages of Timothy's life, because it's different. Uh, we often read the Bible as flat, but it's different. Paul will treat Timothy one way when he first meets him and he's young, and he'll treat him another way when uh, he writes the letters to Timothy. I would say that there's at least three stages that I see in Paul and Timothy. The first is uh, the way Paul, when he first meets Timothy, the way he interacts with him is all, almost exclusively about protection. If you notice in the story, uh, it's, it's almost exclusively about how do I protect this kid, get him in a safe environment? How do I protect him from the, the damage that's been done to him? How do I protect this kid? When our kids are young, um, often the most loving things we can do as parents, this is the stage my kiddos are in, is we give guidelines that our kids may not like or agree with, but we know the guidelines are good for our kids, even if our kids don't like those guidelines, rules or boundaries. Uh, early stage of parenting is often, it feels very punitive. Do this or this happens, right? It's, it's, 
you're going to do this, or this is the consequence. It's very punitive. It's about protecting. Uh, Paul leaves Jerusalem, or sorry, leaves, leaves Lystra to go to Jerusalem, meaning he leaves Timothy behind. Timothy may not understand why he left him behind. We who read the story from a distance know he's arguing on behalf of a guy like Timothy. He's trying to protect him, even if Timothy doesn't see it happening. Later, uh, there's a turn in the story, like in the next couple of verses, where he will circumcise Timothy, even though he just argued that he shouldn't have to, and he wins the argument. And the text tells us why he circumcises Timothy. It's because of the Jews who are living in the region. Does, he doesn't have to circumcise him, but he recognizes that I'm still trying to protect this kid because even if he's in the right, somebody else may come along and do something really damaging to him. So I have to try to protect him. It's a protective measure. Um, when our kids are little, that's really how we show love in many ways. We try to enjoy them first and foremost, and then we recognize that there are some boundaries. It's our responsibility to put the boundaries in. We say things like, don't cross that street. Don't stick the fork in that socket. Don't touch the, that thing, that hot, that hot stove. Um, you can't take your clothes off in the grocery store. <laughs> Lots of things. Because we know what they don't know yet, that streets are dangerous. Electricity can be dangerous. There's a certain way that like, you should not behave in certain situations. We do this whether they understand it or not. We do it to help them. Um, this seems to be how Paul operates when, when Timothy is little. Um, it seems like he's really working hard to protect Timothy uh, because Timothy has, there's a lot riding on this right now for Timothy. He's vulnerable. He's vulnerable. I think one of our jobs when our kids are little, um, I may be right about this, but I, 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 I may not. But I think one of our jobs is as we become adults, we know that Life is bigger than any containers or boxes. God is bigger than the box. Um, I remember my first sermon ever when I was in seminary. I, I put a box on the stage marked God, and my whole sermon was about how God is bigger than our theological boxes. Agreed. But for our kids, it's really important that we actually understand what box we're going to allow them to blow up later. We have to create the box. We may think it's loving to be like, I'll just let them figure out religion on their own. I'll let them figure out God on their own. But if we're not helping them understand God is this, God is not this, someone else is going to come along and they're going to create the box for our kids. If we don't say things like, God doesn't hate that or those people, someone else may come along and say, God, God does hate that or those people. It's our responsibility knowing that even in the creation of the box, that box is probably still limiting. to It's still missing the nuance. It's still very black and white. But we're trying to protect our kids. We're trying to protect their understanding of God and life and the reality of this world. It's all about protection. The second phase you see in Paul's life uh, seems to be about, uh, just to keep with the, the P's, um, pace setting. Paul seems to be trying um, to Maybe another word you would use is model. Model the faith. Uh, there's a number of letters where it's Paul to, or to Philippi from Paul and Timothy. Like They're together in this, and he's modeling something. He takes Timothy with him on his journeys. He's modeling. This often happens when, our, especially, we, have to, we lean into this season. Uh, as if we follow Paul's example, we lean into the season when our kids get a little bit older, when our kids 
are trying to figure out the world and beyond just the black and the white and the right and the wrong. And they're like, how do we model it? I'm not in this season yet fully as a parent, starting to get into it. Um, but I was talking to a good friend of mine, a pastor at Fairhaven Church, um, Pastor Jeremy Cruz. Uh, we share a lot of our life together. And uh, he, was, he was sharing, I found it a really touching, beautiful story. So he was sharing how his daughter is in driver's training. And, uh, and he, he said, you know, Tim, it's been the weirdest thing. This is totally an aside, but he said, it's the weirdest thing. He's like, uh, I didn't realize what a weird gift driver's training would be. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, uh, in the past, I would just run to the store to pick up something from Meyer or Family Fair or whatever, and, and I would just kind of head off on my own. But now my daughter, Elliot, is trying to get, she's trying to get hours on her like, driver's car. So she wants to go with me everywhere. And so I'm getting all of these little moments with my daughter uh, all the time. And then he, then he said this, he said, uh, one of the things that I'm doing when it comes to the modeling of, because I asked him, like, what, how do you model? Like, and he says, one of the things with driver's training in particular is I'll kind of walk her through how to do this, and then I will sit in the driver or the passenger seat, and she'll do it. And when she gets, like, I don't know how to do this next thing, he'll get back out of the car, they'll switch seats, and he will show her how to do it and talk her through it, and then switch seats again, and she'll practice. That's modeling. It's modeling. How do we do that? And you can, t- you can carry that through for how to throw a football pass to how to forgive somebody. Okay, uh, child, you saw me not speak well to your mother. Watch me apologize. Our kids are watching it, and we are responsible for modeling. Early on, it's largely punitive. Not, ex- not only pun- punitive, but it's largely punitive. Do this or this consequence. But if we stay there and we don't begin modeling we can, think, we can create kids who think that the only way to win in life is follow the rules. That's the point is just following the rules. All God wants of us, all mom and dad want of, uh, out of us is just to follow the rules without understanding why the rules are there in the first place. Uh, Paul says this uh, in 2 Timothy 3. Um, he, you can kind of see it in his language. He says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? Uh, The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you you know those from whom you learned it. See how he's modeling? Paul, I was persecuted. Here's how it looked. You will be persecuted too. Here's how, here's how I did it. Here's what I learned through it all. It's modeling. Okay, observation number three. Uh, later, when Paul kind of passes the mantle, um, it has, seems to have more to do with partnering. <clears throat> partnering. If you notice in the letters of Paul, uh, he begins as Paul to the church in Galatia. Then, uh, as he pulls Timothy closer, Timothy comes with him. He begins modeling. Now it's from Paul and Timothy to the church over here. He, like, brings him in. He's now pace-setting. He's modeling. But then he switches, and the letters, First and Second Timothy, are from Paul to Timothy, the pastor of the church. You're no longer just modeling. Now, like, we're partners in this thing. You're, you're, you're like an equal in this thing. It's this third stage that you see that there are all kinds of shifts. When they're little, our job is largely, okay, how do I protect them? How do I keep them safe? Uh, then our role shifts, and we're, we're trying to model something, we're trying to show them something. Come with me. Then, uh, and I, I love this in Paul, like, it, as our kids get older, um, 
it's much more about influence, perspective, like much more about partnering. Uh, I, am, I don't have kids in this age. Uh, I am a kid in this age. Uh, and one of the things I think, um, it's, this is a, probably the hardest one for a lot of parents to make the shift to, but once we have adult children, uh, one of our responsibilities, I think, as parents, you tell me if I'm wrong on this, um, but how do we treat our adult children like adults? Uh, how do we help partner with them? Uh, how, influence, sure. Share perspective, absolutely. But share advice, absolutely. But, but not in a punitive way. Not in a, if you don't take my advice, then I am not going to come to Christmas or whatever. Like It's not a punitive punishment. It's a, here's what I would do. If you don't take my advice, I mean, it's your, it's your choice. Here's what I would do. Um, but you, I think in this stage, one of the things we have to be careful of is the I told you so's, because there's going to be a ton of them, right? Our kids, our, adult, our young adult kids are still going to do their own decisions that they're going to be wrong. And we will want to jump in with the I told you so when they come to you and say, Dad, Thermo, uh, the Stanley thermoses are the coolest thermoses. You're going to want to say, I told you so, because you've, you've had a Stanley for years. You're just going to say, cool. I have one too. It's like, how do we, Paul seems to understand this. His influence seems to be, here's what I did. You're going to go through it too. And he keeps the communication, keeps the relationship lines open so he can continue to coach his uh, still developing, um, this guy, Timothy. Couple questions to wrap up. Um, first, now for those of us who are all trying to model this Christ-like presence to our kids, uh, first, uh, if you have young kids, uh, how are you creating boundaries to protect your kids? Like, not just what are the boundaries, but how are you just determining what the boundaries will be? Um, second, uh, are there any areas that you've not created boundaries that maybe you have to? Um, it's important that you do because if you don't, somebody else might come along and do it. Uh, or um, like, like Paul going to Jerusalem to fight on behalf of Timothy, is there, any, is there any fight in your life that if you were to fight it now, you would maybe help your kids from having to fight that fight later? Any area of sin, struggle, um, something that you just don't want to pass down? And then if your kids are a little bit older, uh, how are you modeling? What are you modeling? Life, maturity, growth, all of it. Um, are there specific times that you're thinking intentionally about, okay, I got to model this for them because they're struggling in this area. I got to model it. I got to model it. Uh, whether that's how to deal with stress, anxiety, anger, like how, how are we thinking about that? And then... Uh, as our kids head into adulthood, uh, the partnering season of life, um, do your kids come to you for advice? This is a tough question. Do your kids come to you for advice? And is there anything you can do that would maybe help them come to you for advice? If they were to come to you for advice, would they walk away saying, um, I, w when they go through something hard, would they say, I really should go talk to mom, she'll know what to do? Or is it, I can't tell mom, she'll never understand? How do we position ourselves to be the kinds of people who can actually pass down the wisdom and the perspective we've accumulated? And then I will leave you with a quote. We focus a lot on Paul's 
work with Timothy, but uh, there's something tender and beautiful about Timothy. Uh, this verse, Deuteronomy, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter one says this. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. God carries you like a father carries his son. Um, for anyone who feels a bit like Timothy, like an outsider, a reject, misunderstood, laughed at, mocked, hurt. There's something really beautiful in the story of how God meets us in those vulnerable places and longs to carry us. If we'll let him, he will carry. Let me close this in order of prayer. Lord, uh, I thank you that the scriptures are um, these really complex and beautiful stories of real people. Lord, I thank you for Timothy. I thank you that uh, he didn't give up. I thank you that when I'm sure he felt overwhelmed by the task ahead of him, uh, that you put in his life a man like Paul who would give him the courage and the strength to keep pushing forward. Lord, I thank you for Paul and Timothy because um, it was through the church that they pastored that um, you chose to work to put a church like this here. And so, Lord, we are deeply thankful. And, Lord, I pray that um, my own parenting would reflect more of the kind of character and the kind of depth that we see in Paul's relationship with Timothy. Lord, I pray that anyone who's feeling shame or guilt, um, um, Lord, we know that that's, shame is never of you. And so, Lord, would you remind us that we today can make decisions to become uh, more godly parents. Uh, Jesus, we love you, and we pray this in your name. And everybody said... For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. On Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 9 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.